Please turn with me or listen on as I read Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. And hear the word of God. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet, uh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, as we take up the great theme and the great subject of your own love for the church, for the elect in Christ, those whom you predestined, those whom you called, those whom you loved, those whom you justified, those whom you glorified. Dear God, this is a great theme. It is a great exposition, which Paul begins here to the end of chapter 8 uh, to unfold. And it is one which we wish uh, to explore these vast dimensions as he speaks of, which are past comprehension at the end of Ephesians 3. Dear God, we ask you that through the weakness of preaching, you might assist our ability to grasp the greatness of this theme as set forth in Scripture. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are here uh, again impressed with what we were impressed with last time. If you remember, uh, I spoke of the way Paul would introduce an idea. He introduced hope in verse 2 of chapter 5 at the end of his his list of the blessings that attend justification in verses 1 and 2. And it leads him in verses 3 and 4 to expound upon the idea of hope, as though to say, uh, having uh, mentioned hope, let me tell you more about hope. And then in verse 5, he tells us about the love of God, which is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And now he says, uh, let me tell you some more about that love, which he does in verses 6 through 11. And so the theme here becomes the love of God. And if you are familiar with uh, the book of Romans, you will know that the great high point There are many high points, but the great high point in this buildup of the exposition of the doctrine of justification in chapters 1 through 8 ends with this resounding note of confidence in the love of God. Who shall separate me and what shall separate me from the love of God? God who has justified me. And he ends with this triumphant note that nothing can, nothing in all the world, not even death itself and the forces of hell. Or my own sin can separate me from the great love with which God has loved me uh, in Christ Jesus. That is the present theme which we are opening up and beginning to consider here. But which will detain us uh, for uh, this portion, verses 6 through 11 uh, of chapter 5. And then for a great part of chapter 8. Seeing the connection then between verse 5 and verses 6 through 11, we could say that verses 6 through 11 are a kind of exposition of the love in particular which the Holy Spirit pours into our hearts. In other words, Paul saying that uh, one of the high points of the Christian life for the man who is justified is to have the Holy Spirit shedding abroad the love of God in our hearts. This is open, perhaps, to misunderstanding. If you were, uh, perhaps, to think of this love as a kind of generic love. 
something which is indefinite, a kind of feeling you get when you think about God, well, you would be wrong, Paul says. You don't understand the, the experience I am describing when the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into the heart of the man who is justified. Add to that what John Murray says, that the love of God cannot be taken for granted. I like that way of putting it, especially I think it had relevance in his days in the middle of the 20th century, but I think it has even more relevance today. You cannot take the love of God for granted. If you do, well, then uh, I doubt verses 6 through 11 have anything to say to you. No, you cannot take it for granted now that sin has entered this world. And mankind, as we have seen, is subject to the wrath of God on account of sin. And yet it seems especially today, that men take it for granted. Just this week, I was driving to church, passing by uh, one of those uh, church signs, and the message was this, and, and I couldn't help but think of the connection to this very sermon. It says, you are God's children. All are welcome. That is exactly what John Murray is talking about. The assumption that stands behind all are God's children, all are welcome, is, well, it's the kind of thing you say when you take the love of God for granted. It's something that you assume about all. All are God's children. And none are subject to wrath and condemnation. God's love, again, is not explained. It is assumed as the equal position of all, the equal privilege of all, to be recipients of the love of God. And in that sense, it is taken for granted by proponents of the liberal gospel. But that is not the love which Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 5 verse 5. The love which the Holy Spirit pours into the heart of the believer. If you have been following his argument. You will realize uh, that such an idea is preposterous. It short circuits the whole logic of the gospel. In fact if you've been following Paul's argument closely as we have. It really is amazing that he should say this. That he should speak of this profusion, this immense outpouring of the love of God into our hearts. He is speaking, after all, to sinners. Those sinners who have a faith like Abraham and thus have been justified. Romans chapter 4. He justifies the ungodly. Men who have faith but who are nonetheless sinners. But is there anything more amazing than, than that God should love A sinner. There's an element of wonder whenever we speak of God's love. Soon we will sing about this. And can it be? Can it be that my God should love a sinner such as me? That's not a line from the the hymn, but that's a summation of the hymn. The The whole element of wonder expressed throughout the hymn. Can it really be that my God, that God who is full of wrath and displeasure for sin and for sinners should love me, a sinner? I almost can't believe it. And certainly, I do not take it for granted. And so that is the position we must start with as we seek to understand this love. And as we seek at the same time to experience it ourselves from the Holy Spirit, whose ministry it is to pour the love of God into our hearts. We don't take it for granted. We're amazed by it. Just at the possibility that God might love a sinner, even me. And so that leads me on to the next observation, and that is 
uh, as I've said already, that this love is not something that is indefinite. It is not generic. But, uh, but having said that, what is it? If it is something definite, how can we know it? And, and that is the purpose of these verses. He's going to explain the love of God, which the believer experiences in his heart, is something that God shows in an unmistakable way. Verse 8 says he demonstrates it. And that word demonstrate is a familiar word in Romans, but uh, in this particular case, it can be translated variously. It can be translated as commends. God is commending his love for sinners in a certain way. Or even more strongly, and I think this really captures the thrust of these verses, he proves it. God proves his love in a certain way. He doesn't just make you feel it, but he proves it. In, in exactly the same way that we saw in earlier portions of Romans, uh, Paul speaking of the wrath of God or the righteousness of God. God is demonstrating something to man in an unmistakable way. He's proving it in a way that, well, even the godless could not honestly question. He says the same about his love. He commends it. He proves it. He demonstrates it. And he does so in a certain way. He wishes us to know about it and see it for ourselves. Uh, one of the ways that I could put this, uh, to use the language of James, is that God loves not in word only. We, we're thankful for his word. But we can't limit everything to his word. But he loves indeed. He loves in action. And that is what these verses are about. It's about the action of God which proves his love. It is a love, Paul says, which is seen at a specific place and at a, a specific uh, time in history, a moment of time in history, namely in the death of Jesus Christ, his own son. Which tells us that the love which the Holy Spirit sheds abroad in the heart of the believer is none other than the love of God which is displayed at Calvary. And it is a love that cannot be known in any other way. If you think of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as bringing the gifts and the graces of Christ to the believer. Not indiscriminate, not indefinite gifts, but the very things of Christ to bear upon our lives and our hearts. The love of God on display at the cross. That is what the Holy Spirit sheds abroad in our hearts. And that is a love that you cannot know in any other way. One of the things that Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his sermons on these verses, uh, using the hymn we just sung, and it, it's a perfect hymn to sing in a setting like this, you have to survey the cross. You have to actually set your faith upon it and see what God is doing there. And when you do that, when you make the cross the focus of your faith, well, then you begin to open yourself up to the experience that Paul is describing in verse 5. This overwhelming experience and knowledge and certainty of the love of God for sinners, even one such as myself. And so another way to look at these verses is as part of this broader exposition in chapters 5 and chapter 8 on the subject of assurance and the certainty of salvation. Remember, I've entitled... Uh, this new section, chapters 5 through 8, that section under the rubric, the certainty or my certainty of salvation. The certainty, in other words, that justification carries along with it. 
Having been justified, that's verse 1 of chapter 5, I am able and I really ought to experience the certainty of salvation. Well, this is part of that discussion. The man who has been justified is meant to have assurance. He's meant to be sure. And the thing that makes him sure and that gives him the certainty above all is the love of God. The love of God brought to him by the Holy Spirit. But what is it, again, that makes this love to appear to us so that we may be sure and doubt it no more? And beyond that, how can we know the full extent of this love? What is it really like and how far does it reach? What, in other words, is the measure of this love? Again, that is what these verses are about, verses 6 through 11. And the first thing that I would say about this love on display in the gospel is that we should see the gospel as a demonstration or a display of God's love. God's love. And that is something we have to stop and consider. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. That's verse 8. And to me that is the key thought of these verses. But have we adequately comprehended them? One of the favorite verses of Christians, and certainly it's one of mine, is John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you understand what that verse is expressing? Ultimately, and basically, is the love of God. That verse views the whole gospel event the sending of the Son of God into the world for sinners as an expression of the great love which God had for the world. His own love. And what is that love like? Well, we're obviously considering an attribute of God here. Just like His righteousness and His wrath and His grace, things that we've considered already, that God is demonstrating and proving, especially at the cross. But here it is the love of God. Again, as an attribute Of his own perfect nature. And to realize that you are considering God's own love. Is to see that it is something which is eternal and perfect. It is not capable of varying degrees or any shadow of change. Here is a love which is perfect and steady. And covers the vast expanse of eternity. Of course we must begin when speaking of God's own love. With his love for himself. For God to love himself. That's what he's speaking of here. And to speak of that is not to speak of vanity. Not the kind of self-love that you would condemn in man. But it really in fact expresses the perfection of his love. For his love is set upon that which is most lovely. And that which is perfect. And there's nothing so lovely as God himself. Yes, God has a great love for himself, his own love. I'm using the phrase of Paul here. God demonstrates his own love toward us. Try to think about that. Likewise, his own love is an expression of the immeasurable love and the bond of love which uh, which exists between the persons of the Trinity. And here, along with John's gospel, I would especially highlight The bond of love which exists between the Father and the Son. It is a bond, an eternal and a perfect and an immeasurable bond of love. 
There exists between the Father and the Son a love which, which eternity cannot extinguish or quench. There is a continual outpouring of love and delight from the Father to the Son and in return from the Son to the Father. And this is the love that Christ speaks of in his high priestly prayer concerning his own that they may be beloved of the Father as he is. That they might enjoy the very love of God toward the Son themselves. That God might love them even as he loves his own Son. That his own love might be expressed toward us, as Paul says. And so let us see before we go any further, that this love being the love of God must be a very great love in itself, just considered on its own. But the whole wonder here, as expressed in these verses and in so many other places in Scripture, is that such a love should be set upon us who were unlovely, weak, and sinful. And that salvation as a result appears as an overflow of the love of God. In other words, when we ask, what was it that, God, that caused God to send his own son into the world to die for sinners? The answer is found in his attribute of love. A, lo- a love once more, which was very great, expressed in the word, the little word, so, in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he even went this far. He didn't stop short even of this. He was brought, if you think of it, to the greatest extremity even his great mind could devise or conceive. But you see, once you realize this, once you conceive of the gospel as an expression of the love of God that has a way of, of, uh, of casting the work of the Son in a certain light as well. For we ask, why did he come? And what did he accomplish for sinners with respect to the Father? Was his saving work seen as that which purchased and secured God's love for us? Did he make God love us? No. It was rather, as we discover in these verses and so many other places, God's love, which is eternal and predated his coming into the world, that sent him there. The coming of the Son into the world does not secure the love of God. It expresses it and explains it. It was God's great love. God the Father. It was that he so loved the world that he sent his own Son into it. That he might, or that we might not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, as it's sometimes put, uh, the, the son was not there on the cross pleading with the father that he might accept us and that he might love us, uh, seeking to persuade him to do it. No, again, it was God's love that sent him there. It was his great and eternal purpose to forgive our sins and remember them no more. That's what God was expressing and accomplishing on the cross. He didn't need to be persuaded He was already disposed to love and to to pardon and to forgive. He only needed an outlet for that great love. And for that, the son willingly endured his displeasure for sin on the cross to put it away once and for all. 
Again, the son was not purchasing the love of God. He was expressing it. Let us learn to see the gospel like that. A demonstration of God's own love toward us. He was putting it, God was putting it on display in such a way that it would persuade us. He was commending it. He was proving it. And melt our hearts. It is an expression of the great love which he has for us. And it is a love, let us see, that can be measured to some extent. And what do I mean by this? Well, it seems that this really is the purpose of these verses. Not just to tell us about God's love, where it can be found and where it can be seen. But that we might there at the cross also see the measure and the extent of that love. So that we, in seeing the greatness of that love, would never again question it. So that we would, in other words, have a certainty and an assurance. And so let me make this observation. I'm not alone in making it. You can hardly read a commentary or a sermon on this passage and not find the man making it. Let me add my testimony to theirs. It's a very pastoral consideration. Observing here the connection between the love of God in relation to our assurance, which is the great focus of these chapters. And ask yourself, what is it that forms the basis of my assurance? And this is where many go wrong. Is it, uh, we ask, my love to God? Do I measure my assurance against my love to God? No, I don't. That is not the argument of Scripture. That is not the way to assurance. And there are many reasons for this, but one of them is that my love is always unstable. My love cannot become the basis of anything solid or certain. But that, thank God, is not the way that Scripture tells us to grow in assurance and to have certainty with respect to salvation. The only way, in fact... To arrive at this certainty, Scripture tells us, is to consider God's love. And even to consider the vast extent of it. To see, as Paul demonstrates here, how completely God has displayed his love on the cross. And even proves it. And the more that you survey that wondrous work, the more assured you will be of the love of God for sinners. Even sinners such as yourselves. And so let us focus on that great work and see what we see. The work of Christ in dying for sinners. Paul has spoken of it already in chapter 3, verse 24. He says, uh, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that redemption has the cross in view. For he says in verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, that's a reference to the cross. And there the cross, or the death of Christ, is seen as propitiation. That is what it accomplishes for us, which is, uh, and what, what what that means is the removal of wrath. The wrath that we've been considering is removed in chapters 1 through 3. The wrath which God is revealing from heaven. Christ propitiated Not only that, but he goes on to say, this demonstrates the righteousness and the justice of God. Verses uh, 25 and 26. But here we have that same work in view. The work 
of the Savior dying on the cross. The work of the Father in handing him over to die on the cross. Only now is that which causes the love of God to shine forth with unmistakable clarity. In other words, when you look at the cross and you survey it, what do you see? Well, for one thing, you will see what the centurion saw. We read about him in Mark. He beheld uh, the death of Christ and he said, surely or truly, this was the Son of God. You will realize indeed, as you cast your gaze upon the cross, that Jesus is the Son of God. But you will also notice, Paul is saying, uh, something about God himself in the perfection of his justice. You will notice his justice and his righteousness that required such a price for our redemption. We've already considered this in prior sermons. But oh, and above that, what will strike you more than anything else about the cross is the immense love of God. You will look upon his bleeding wounds, which he willingly endured for us, and you will conclude that God must love us with a great love, for there is no other explanation for the cross. Christ died for the ungodly, verse 6. Christ died for us, verse 8. What does it prove? What does it make clear? The love of God for sinners. This is what John tells us in John chapter 3, verse 16, but also in his first epistle, chapter 4. First John chapter 4. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son as savior of the world. I'm looking at the wrong place. I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, he he tells us, you know, I'm still getting, all these months later, I'm still getting used to this new Bible. <laughs> and I cast my gaze on the place and it isn't there because I'm used to another Bible. But he tells us in another place, ah, uh, there it is, it's verse 9. I went too far. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. Likewise, we find Paul at the end of Romans chapter 8, glorying in the cross itself as an unmistakable proof. Who shall separate us from God's love now that Christ has died for us? Everything is building up to that great high point. And so do you want to know the love of God? Do you want to know, in other words, that you are a child of God rather than simply taking it for granted and assuming it. And beyond that, to capture the essence of Paul's argument here, do you want to know how great it is and the vast measure of that love? In other words, how far it goes. Well, how far does it go? Look to the cross, he says. And there you will see God handing over his own son for us. You will see God demonstrating his great love for us. How far does it go? This far, God says. And really, when you consider how far this goes, you will realize that God can go no farther, as we will see. 
which is why Paul begins in verses 9 through 11 and again in chapter 8, verse 32, to argue from the greater to the lesser. And why is that? It's because once Paul proves that God has done the greatest thing he could do, the only way to reason from there is down, from the greater to the lesser. Down from his great love, demonstrated on the cross to these lesser things. For nothing is greater than that. And there is no greater thing that God could do. And anything else we must consider, uh, or anything else we consider, I mean, must be secondary. Yes, if we were saved by his death, God will surely do these lesser things for us. There isn't anything, in fact, he won't do for us now that he has done the greatest thing. And such will become Paul's reasoning in verses 9 through 11 and again in chapter 8 at the end. If God went so far even as to deliver over his son for my salvation, will he not also with him freely give us all things? You see, that's the argument from the greater to the lesser. But what that proves before you argue to the lesser is that he's done the greatest thing. The greatest thing that even he could do for sinners to demonstrate his love. But how does the greatness, the vast measure of his love, appear to us? And here we can briefly take a more detailed look at the argument of these verses, verses 6 through 8. There are several considerations that Paul sets forth that reason persuasively as to the greatness of the love on display of, uh, uh, at Calvary and considerations by which we might measure the vastness of the love of God. First, look at this single word, the name Christ. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ. Let us realize that we cannot consider God's love apart from him. For he is the one in whom God has demonstrated his love. And just as soon as you try to conceive of it apart from him, it disappears. Oh, but take a sinner to Christ himself. And he will find the very wellspring of God's love. He will not only know it, but he will be overwhelmed by it. He will begin to explore in this person the vast dimensions of God's love, as Paul expresses at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, and as we read earlier. And so realize the apostle is saying that the whole of God's love for us and his whole plan in saving us is found in him, Christ. God expresses his own love toward us while we were yet sinners in the person and in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, he doesn't just pour it out on us through the Holy Spirit. He demonstrates it first in his son. And then having done that by the Holy Spirit, he takes that same love, making us aware of it in his son And pours it into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But what is it about Christ that so expresses this love? The answer is his death. It was that Christ died for us as he says twice in verses 6 and 8. And also alludes to it in verse 7. And do you realize? Paul is saying that this is as far as one can go. There is nothing greater than this. That one should die for another. You cannot go past this. There is no greater work left undone. It is the ultimate form of sacrificial love. And add to that, 
as Paul says in another place, the kind of death it was, namely death on a cross. And there isn't any kind of death worse than that. And the fact, add to that, that the one who died on the cross for me was the sinless and spotless Lamb of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you will see a love which defies reason. Can God really love like this? Oh, but he goes further in verse 7. That God really can love like this. And in fact, only God can. Of course, he says, verse 7, a man might love a good and a righteous man enough to die for him. It is admittedly only a possibility. And even then, it is unlikely. But perhaps, perhaps you would die even for a good and a righteous man. And yet, Paul says, measure God's love by this. That he loves the unlovely. He is not caused to love us because we were good and righteous. No, it was while we were just the opposite. While we were weak, while we were helpless, while we were sinners. Which is all to say, while we were incapable, incapable of saving ourselves, while we were his enemies. And yet, we discover that God fetches this love from his own heart. His own love. Paul says. And it was the greatness of this love found not in ourselves but in himself that led him to this extremity to send his own son to die for weak and sinful men, the ungodly, those who deserve nothing but wrath. Do you realize this is what God's love is like? That God is capable of loving his enemies and loving them to such an extent that he makes them sons. His love is great enough to overcome the animosity and to bring in reconciliation, not in word only, but also in deed. You see, again, his love is full of action. It goes just as far as it can in order to bring in reconciliation, the fruit of his love. And to think God's heart nearly breaking for us. While we were yet sinners, unable to save ourselves, weak and helpless, did he leave us there? No, he loved us too much for that. He had ever set his heart on us, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. And so he could not leave us in such a state. He went after us and did what was necessary to save us. And in doing this, he sought to persuade us of his great love for us so that we would never doubt it again. Not for another moment of our lives. And this, the last consideration in due time, what of that? Well, you see, that too is significant. It proves to us that the cross is not something haphazard or secondary, but that it was something planned in the great mind of God. Only God was waiting to do it. Not only time would do, or not any time would do, I mean. He wanted to show... This love just when it seemed that all was lost. And that man really was past hope. And who can read the Old Testament and not get this unmistakable impression? Come along with me in our study of Malachi and you will see it. The final message of the prophets is that the people were as sinful as they had ever been. Though God had striven with them for so long. But just then, God burst forth onto the scene and made this amazing display of love. At just the right time, 
Here was the result of something deliberate, something planned in the mind of God, something that he had set not just his mind, but his heart upon, and he could not be persuaded to give up, however sinful the people had become. Still, he was determined to express his love for sinners. And when you take all of this together, you will see, in fact, a love, as Paul says again in Ephesians chapter 3, which passes comprehension. It is a love indeed which only God is capable of. But God, having felt it in his heart and having purpose to express it in due time, does feel it. And so he does express it. An effusion of love. A superabundance which is in reality past measuring it. You can try to measure it. Paul invites us to measure it, but you will be stretched beyond your limits. For this love goes beyond the limits of human reason. And yet, it is undeniable. The logic here simply becomes, if God has done this, if he has gone this far, which he has, and we know that he has, then is there any room left for me to question him? It isn't simply, do you see how God accomplished salvation? That is not the argument. It is, why are you still questioning it? Why are you still doubting it? Why are you still entertaining this question as to whether God could love a sinner such as me? How do I still lack clarity on this point? How do I still lack certainty and assurance with respect? In particular, to the love of God for me. No, rather, to use the language of the Apostle Paul. When I survey this wondrous cross, I am persuaded of it. And I cannot be unpersuaded of it. What we see at the end of Romans chapter 8 is a man who sees it and knows it and tries to measure it but cannot but who is at least absolutely persuaded of the love of God for sinners. Now I know, he says, nothing is able, able to separate me from this love. It is too great. It is too perfect. God has demonstrated it to me, and I am no longer able to deny it. Just as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, again speaking to the man who has been justified, a man who knows he is justified by faith only is a man who should enjoy great certainty. And the way he enjoys this certainty is by considering the great love of God on display at the cross. And so, if ever you should lack this certainty and assurance, I wonder if it is only because you're still measuring it by your own faith or your own love to God. But let me say again, as I said earlier, the great practical point of this passage, that is not the way to assurance, beloved. You will never arrive at assurance by measuring yourself. It is only by measuring the great work that God has done and seeing what it is that he has demonstrated on the cross. Consider that and then you will know. And beyond that, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. For it is his office and it is his ministry to uh, to believers to shed abroad this very love in your hearts, to cause you to know it and to experience it. And so to be sure and to use the words of Jesus Is not God a good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children who ask even the Holy Spirit? And so ask God for the Spirit. Amen. And let us now come to the table.